Good morning, everyone. This is Janet, and I am the hostess of the Spoken Memory podcast. Today's May 1st, 2021, and we're, I have the pleasure of recording Cameron uh, reading the document that Laverne Griffin, Colonel Laverne Griffin, wrote about his uh, amazing overflight um, work in during the Korean War and post-Korean War. So... This is a document that Laverne wrote and Cameron, his grandson, will be reading. And uh, without further ado, take it away, Cameron. Thank you, Janet. Um, As you mentioned, I'm uh, Laverne's grandson and excited and honored to be able to read this account of my grandfather, Colonel Laverne Griffin's, uh, some of his brief exploits in the Korean War and post-Korean War overflights of the RF-86F over uh, the USSR. Fittingly, or perhaps not, here on May Day. So, here we go. My part in the tactical reconnaissance missions involving overflight of denied territory began in June 1953. I was assigned to the 15th Tactical Reconnaissance Squadron operating out of K-14 Kimpo Air Base near Seoul, Korea. My first mission was as wingman on an RF-80 overflight of the Shantung Peninsula, mainland of China. This was an unsuccessful flight due to clouds over the target area around Tsingtao. My second overflight took place on July 27, 1953, the last day of the war. The political rules of the Korean War dictated that we would not cross the Yalu River into China for any reason. Under top-secret orders, this policy was modified to allow RF-86 pilots to obtain photographs and intelligence about the enemy air order of battle north of the Yalu. I was assigned a mission on the last day of the war to photograph bases at Kirin and Harbin in northern Manchuria, China. I was accompanied by a fighter pilot from the 4th Fighter Wing, which was located across the field from our squadron. We departed on the maximum range mission, climbing out through low overcast and proceeding on top to the targets. Radio silence was maintained, and navigation was difficult, but the clouds below began to break up, and I picked up a bend in the Yalu River that I could positively identify as being close to our course. It was the first checkpoint I could see in 250 miles. We dropped our external fuel tanks before crossing the Yalu, and the weather began to clear. I obtained photos of Kirin, which was clear, and proceeded on to Harbin, where visibility was excellent. I distinctly remember being impressed with seeing the Great Wall of China, which extended as far as the eye could see. Picking up the Harbin airfield, I banked up 90 degrees to the right so that I could see half the airfield, then 90 degrees to the left so that I could see the other half of the airfield. Then I knew the airfield was directly below my line of sight, and I turned on the camera. Mission completed, we reversed course for home base. About the time we crossed the Yalu homebound, I discovered that I could not breathe due to a depleted oxygen supply. We were at 47,000 feet at the time and did not dare descend to a lower altitude where oxygen would be available because we would not have had enough fuel to reach home base, which just happened to be the nearest friendly airfield to us. I was wobbling all over the air trying to extract my bailout bottle when my 
wingman, noticing my erratic flying, broke radio silence to ask me if I had a problem. I assured him that I did, but thought I could handle it, although I might be a little unsteady on the controls for a while. We had no autopilots in the F-86. The bailout bottle in the parachute holds about 10 minutes of oxygen, but I was looking to extend that idea by kinking up the hose and breathing only as I needed. Bad idea. The oxygen comes out in a continuous flow at about 1900 PSI, and it blew up the hose like it was a balloon. Giving up on that idea, I hooked it up to my mask and quickly calculated where I would be at the end of 10 minutes planned to arrive at that point at an altitude that would put the pressurized cockpit at about 15,000 feet where I could at least survive. This plan worked out well and we were able to make a gradual descent into Kimpo Air Base, arriving with the minimum amount of fuel. We never saw any airborne MiGs, much to my wingman's disappointment. I believe he had four to his credit and desperately wanted one more to make an ace. I was put in for the silver star for this mission, and my understanding at the time was that all the overflight missions were recommended for the silver star. But being the last day of the war, the awards and decorations officer soon transferred out, the paperwork got lost, and I never received as much as an air medal for the mission. About a week after the war ended, I was sent on exchange duty to the Marine Air Wing at K-3 Air Base to fly the F-2H-2P Banshee which was a reconnaissance aircraft. Just about the time I was ready to qualify aboard a carrier, I was recalled to Kimpo to replace the squadron operations officer who went home on emergency leave. We flew a number of missions after the war up along the coast of North Korea, not getting any closer than the three-mile limit, which the United States endorsed, but keeping our eyes open for MiGs since the Soviets and North Vietnamese insisted on a 12-mile limit. We used a 36-inch focal-length camera mounted in the nose of the 86 for this exercise. But at three miles, an oblique photo was not the best for reviewing intelligence. On March 1st, 1954, the 15th TRS was transferred to Komaki Air Base in Nagoya, Japan. I later learned that the reason for the transfer was the fact that we were to be equipped with a new model of the RF-86. And under the terms of the armistice, a newer version of aircraft would not be allowed on a Korean air bases. This version of the 86 was equipped with two 40-inch vertically mounted cameras, which required a nose modification, including bulges on the side of the fuselage. A six-inch camera was also installed for plotting purposes. Because of the bulges, this aircraft was restricted to a 0.9 limiting Mach number. Now we would be directed to obtain photographic intelligence vital to our knowledge of the enemy nuclear capability during a period of the Cold War when we knew little about our potential enemy's resources. It is difficult for anyone today to understand the tension existing in the world at that time, the polarization developing into two armed camps, democracy versus communism. The Korean War ended as a stalemate with a truce that still exists today. But we know of the deep involvement of the Soviet Union in support of Chinese and North Korean forces in their efforts to take over the entire Korean peninsula. Tensions were not only high in the Far East, but throughout Western Europe as well. The Soviets now had the hydrogen bomb and they were building more modern bombers capable of delivering nuclear weapons. Their action was an omen of aggression and 
as a viable counterforce to huge Soviet armies in Europe. We did not know whether communist efforts to expand would break out anew in the Far East or in Europe. It was with this understanding of communist expansion threatening us and our allies that perhaps our very survival that strategic planners decided that we must know much more about the Soviet and Chinese capabilities. If all-out war became a reality, our bombers' forces and strategic air command needed to know not only the enemy order of battle, but also their radar capabilities, in-range, altitude, as well as operational frequencies. SAC, Strategic Air Command, needed to know how to jam those frequencies and be knowledgeable of the best avenues of penetration. It was then decided at the highest level that we would be launched on top-secret overflight missions, first over the Vladivostok area, later to places like Port Arthur, Darien, Shanghai, Mukden, Koborosk, and Soviet submarine pens. As the squadron operations officer and the most experienced RF-86 pilot in the unit, I was designated to select pilots and plan for a maximum range top secret mission, but for the time being, given only the distance that the mission would require. Before we could fly the mission, we had to fly practice missions locally, using the same distances we would be required to cover on the actual flight. This would allow us to check our cruise control procedures, power settings, and included dropping all external tanks at the appropriate times to determine how long we could remain airborne and still have minimum fuel for landing. We practiced this profile over the Sea of Japan a few times, recording data and determining that we could indeed complete the mission in these newer but somewhat restricted model RF-86 aircraft. About the only change required for optimum performance had the North American tech reps installing rats and mice in the engine to increase the tailpipe temperature so as to maintain 640 degrees above 40,000 feet altitude. My last profile mission was for two hours and 50 minutes, and our actual mission was planned for two hours and 40 minutes. I told the planners that we could make it with fuel to spare. We were briefly, we were briefed by a couple of field grade officers on the first mission, which was to be staged out of North Korea, excuse me, out of Korea, over the Sea of Japan, into the Vladivostok area of the Soviet Union to obtain photos of select air bases and a recovery into Misawa, Misawa Air Base in northern Japan. The briefing included the targets, the route to be flown, the altitudes to fly, and of course the cover stories we had to have if we were forced to come down in Russian territory. Being much younger then, and eager, I wanted to believe these stories. In reflection, though, the cover stories seemed pretty weak. I doubt if the enemy would have believed that we were lost while flying a local mission out of Nagoya, Japan, some 300 miles to the south, especially since we were wearing poopy suits, those rubber exposure suits almost guaranteed to keep you alive 30 minutes longer in ice-cold water in case of a ditching at sea. Some smart electronic guys had calculated that the Russian radar would not be able to see us above 38,000 feet so that before crossing the 40th parallel, we had to climb above 38,000, above which we were assured we would be invisible to Soviet radar. Our flight would stage out of Osan, Korea, where there was a long runway at K-55 Air Base. We would top off all of four external, air, external tanks of fuel 
two 200-gallon tanks and two 120-gallon tanks. Head over, out over the Sea of Japan and drop the 200-gallon tanks, which still contained some fuel, so that we could climb above 38,000 feet before reaching 40 degrees north latitude and eventually reaching 42,000 feet before entering Soviet airspace. We would carry the 120-gallon tanks until we exited the Russian mainland and at least 12 miles out to sea. No sense in leaving a couple of fuel tanks in Vladivostok that said Made in USA. On the 21st of March, 1954, six RF-86 Sabres departed Komaki Aerodrome, Japan, Hosan, Korea, about an hour and a half flight. The pilots with me were Lieutenant Bill Bissett, Major George Saylor, Lieutenant Larry Garrison, Lieutenant Sam Dickens, and Lieutenant Pete Garrison. Dickens and Garrison would be spares who would return to the base if the first four aircraft dropped tanks and got to 38,000 feet without any problems. Upon landing at K-55, our aircraft were met and whisked with inside a huge hangar so as to not be detected by any outsiders who might wonder at these 86s with the bulges on the nose. Next morning was a beautifully clear day, and we checked our en route weather and winds, refined the flight plan for the winds, and briefed for the mission. The aircraft were towed out of the hangar and up onto some 2x6 boards and fuel added to the drop tanks until they overflowed. We cranked up the engines and taxied to the runway without delay, using a green light from the tower for clearance. There would be absolute radio silence on this flight, except for an emergency. We departed to the east using a lot of takeoff roll with a heavy load and headed out on course. The climb to altitude was uneventful, and eight 200-gallon tanks from four aircraft were jettisoned successfully over the Sea of Japan. We closed up the formation gave each other the thumbs up to signify that the drops were clean and the aircraft looked okay. At this point, the disappointed spare pilots waved goodbye and returned to Komaki Air Base, Japan. Four of us continued on in tactical formation, wingman with their eyes on a swivel to detect possible MiG-15 interceptors. As we approached the coast near Vladivostok, the two elements split up as each element had a specific target to photograph. It was shortly after this that I heard the transmission, Alabama. This transmission brought a tingle down my spine. Alabama was the code word of our companion element for pulling contrails, which would be a dead giveaway to revealing our presence over the Soviet mainland. The code word for our element was California. I looked at my wingman, Bissett, and since he was not pulling any contrails, I continued to press on over the Vladivostok area, nervously, I might add. The other element aborted their mission and headed for Misawa, Japan, although I did not know it at the time. We flew over the airfields at Vladivostok, proceeding as far north as Artem, and exposed over 90 frames of film on several airfields. We had no airborne aircraft sightings to worry about, and we proceeded to exit the area on course for Misawa. After reaching the 12-mile limit, we jettisoned the two inboard tanks and breathed a sigh of relief. Part of our mission was to exercise the Japanese Air Defense Force to see if they could pick up aircraft incoming from the Soviet Union at high altitude. I would have to rate this effort a failure. Without the IFF on, they couldn't pick us up, and with 
it on, they did a poor job of intercepting us. At any rate, we recovered at Misawa Air Base, where we were met by a C-47, which took us to Tokyo and where the film was processed and interpreted by SAC photo interpreters. They told us that the results were excellent. We were not allowed to view the film ourselves, though, but it must have been successful as the next morning we were summoned to the office of the commander of the Far Eastern Air Forces, FEAF, General O.P. Wayland, where he pinned the distinguished flying cross on the four of us. His exact words were, Boys, I'll take care of the paperwork later, but here's a little something for the job well done. I guess we would have done anything for that, General. I was the leader of the next two missions, which were in the same general area, Vladivostok, one of them on 3 April 1954, and one of them on April 22nd, 1954. I selected a few different pilots for this mission, my motive being to ensure that all the qualified 86 pilots had a chance to obtain a distinguished flying cross for their efforts. My wingman on the 3rd of April mission was Lieutenant Sam Dickens, and on the 22nd April mission, Lieutenant Frank Halstead. On the last mission, we sighted an airborne MiG about 5,000 feet below us as we were exiting the area. After determining that he did not see us, I maneuvered on over top of him and took his picture. Upon examining the film, the photo interpreter rushed out of the lab and says, Do you know what you got on this film? I said that I hoped I had gotten the targets, and he said, No, I mean the airplane. I said, you mean that MiG-15 that flew under us? He said, that's not a MiG-15, it's a MiG-17, and we didn't know that they were deployed east of the Urals. And that is how a lucky strike extra picture became a valuable intelligence find. I rotated back to Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina, on the 1st of May, 1954, and thus ended my career as an overflight pilot. While at Shaw, I deceived received two more distinguished flying crosses for the last two missions I had flown in April 1954. I know that all the pilots who were with me on the first three overflights received a distinguished flying cross. I never knew if there were other missions, although I expected that had more had been flown. I remember that a volunteer pilot from Shaw was selected to go to Japan to fly an RF-100, which I suspected was to replace the RF-86. I remember that I wished it could have been me, but I was newly married, and volunteering at that point was out of the question. But what was probably the highlight to a 28-year Air Force career was something I could not talk about for 46 more years. I'm glad that this forgotten episode of tactical reconnaissance is finally being documented, and I will take it rightfully, and it will take it its rightful place in our military history. Signed, Laverne Griffin, Colonel, U.S. Air Force Retired, Portage, Wisconsin. Oh, thank you, Cam. Thank you. He was quite a man, wasn't he? Quite a service person. Yeah. Quite a husband. Uh, He was all of those things for sure, Janet. And boy, he could, for all the things he did, he could sure write about him well, too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. I think he was 20, yeah, 20, I was doing the math there, but in 1954, it would have been, um, I guess, 25, 26. Yeah, exactly, 27, something like that. So he'd be a young man, still, 
and uh, yet he had a whole lot of uh, supervision and responsibility he was being given not only as a pilot for those particular uh, flights but to uh, supervise as the operations officer to supervise the other pilots on the missions just amazing continue he continually amazes me with his skills and abilities and uh, history his activities that he engaged in yeah, I mean, having a leadership role like that. And then even, I mean, as much as he, you know, that, that story itself says a lot about it. He spent, there was three pages on procedure, a good two paragraphs about mentioning his, his but at least two paragraphs, and they're mentioning his um, flight mates, his wingmen, and ensuring that they all could get a distinguished flying cross meter. At that age and that leadership, he was already looking out for everyone else. And then only at the end does he have a very quick one-paragraph blurb about the find of that MiG-17, which was enormous. I mean, other people might have made that whole story just about that and themselves, but he was a guy that always thought about other people and trying to bring them up, too. I just, I, I like this story because it really shows... Uh, the grift that I grew up in was fortunate enough to know. Yeah. Amen. Quite a man. Uh, yeah. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was an honor to let me read this. I'm sure I, I, I am excited and a little nervous to hear certainly my voice over it. I, uh, I never think it sounds as good as... I, I hate to hear it, to be honest with you. I, I almost well, can't stand it. Well, you don't have to listen to it, but we will. 